Midwest Mavericks is powered by Mother G, aligning business and technology. Today on Midwest Mavericks, we have Dr. Sonnet Berniker Hart. Sonnet, welcome. It's a, Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited on uh, multiple levels. We like to uh, talk uh, to Mavericks on the show, and um, I've, I've heard you speak in the past, and your story is one of true Mavericks. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're the first distiller in Illinois for in many, many years. I think since the 1800s, Chicago, right? yeah. Chicago oh, since the mid 1800s, yeah. 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 And uh, uh, you've you've really helped fuel the regeneration of distilling uh, as a craft business mm-hmm. in the United States. And we're going to talk more about that. But your life story is so interesting. I do want to take a few <laughs> minutes and, and talk a little bit about your past and, and how you arrived at this spot. Sure. Um, you're a native Chicagoan, yep. right? Wrigleyville. Wrigleyville. Good. Cubs fan? <laughs> of course. Okay, good. Harry Carey sung me to sleep as a child. So, <laughs> okay. you, you know, right. it's sort of I'm, in my blood. <laughs> I'm with you there. So uh, you, you, you grew up in Wrigleyville, uh, and yet you have a Ph.D. from University of London. Yes. So how does that happen? I come from a long line of adventurous individuals. You know, I went to college in Indiana. I went to Earlham College. That was my, oh, yeah. my first degree. Uh, and... After after Earlham, I'd spent some time in France abroad uh, for my undergraduate, and I enjoyed studying abroad. And I feel the experience of travel is so essential for opening a person to what is possible in the world and who is in the world and what you can learn and how you can learn it and different ways of learning things. And I decided that instead of going to grad school in the United States, that it would be an added experience uh, to go abroad. So I applied and I got a little mini scholarship to go to University of London, which was a very different and interesting experience, first living in London and also being a student there. And then after that, I went to Oxford for more school because I just couldn't get out of the library. (laughs) I should point out, you have... German heritage. You're German, from Chicago, Austrian, yeah, right. Um, your 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 great grandmother is the one that was going to run away from home, basically. Well, she was on the Russian side. She actually did run away from home. She was 13 years old. She lived in a little shtetl in Pinsk in Russia, and it was not a very comfortable place to be uh, for a Jew in the. At that time, at the turn of the century. Yeah, like 1900s. Well, probably, yeah, 1900s uh, or very early. And she heard a, uh, there was a lot of anti-Semitism and a Jew from her town uh, was uh, quartered by, with horses one night. And she heard it out her window and she told her parents, I'm out of here. This is it. I'm not living here anymore. I'm going to America. And they said, no, you're not. You're 13. You're not going anywhere. And she says, well, if you won't let me leave, then I'm going to starve myself to death. <laughs> Jeez. She was a tough one. Wow. And then she starved herself for about a week. Is I think it was right? about wow. seven days. And then they said, her mom came down and says, fine, go. And so she went. And wow. she uh, you know, went with some guy in, in her town who posed as her uncle, got on a boat, went to New York, her wow, sister, it was, she was very bold. Her sister, who was much older than her, had moved to America with her husband many years before. I don't think she'd seen her in 10 years. And uh, you know, she probably saw her last when she was three years old. Right. And so her brother-in-law you know, picked her up and literally right off the boats brought her to the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, uh, which was a 
a bunch of seamstresses and uh, and tailors in a in a large factory in New York. She looked in the building, and this is right off the boat. She didn't speak a word of English, uh, and he says, "You're going to work in there." And she looked in there, and it was dark and it was scary and. It was, you know, she says, no, I'm not. (laughs) And he says, well, you're on your own then and left her on the street. Wow. And so she sat on the street for a while and she was crying. And we interviewed her when she was in her 80s. And uh, we have her voices in my head. And she said, so I was sitting on the street corner crying. And then I said, why am I crying? I need a job. So she went and got a job. And she eventually worked very hard and brought over her entire family. Wow, that's terrific. How did you end up in Chicago? How'd that? She moved to Chicago uh, with, uh, I believe, a gentleman she met. And then they set up here, and she was a seamstress here. And uh, he eventually got very ill. And so she was helping him, supporting him, and then taking care of uh, four children and putting them through school and putting them through everything uh, all on all by herself, wow. basically. That's tremendous. So flashback, you're going to school, you, you get your Ph.D. in uh, history, I believe, correct? It was, it was German cultural history. Okay. And so you start teaching. Yes. I taught for about 10 years. I lectured throughout Europe and in the United States, and I was a tenured professor and... Um, yeah, and when did you meet change. your husband? I met him right before I moved to Germany to be the Walter Benjamin Chair of German Jewish Cultural History at Humboldt University in Berlin. So I met him in Washington D.C., and he just followed me there. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, I'm not, "I said I'm not going to have a long distance relationship." And he's like, "You don't have to." <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, he's he's from Austria. He's from Austria. So that that wasn't that was more like moving closer to home than it was. I think when we first got. To Berlin, he probably would not have agreed with that statement. <laughs> Austria and Germany, they. they when a when bit were you in uh, Germany at that point? What, what this year was is this? in 2005. Okay, so yeah. you're teaching. How do you end up back in the United States? Look, I loved what I was doing. I had such a great time. My students were fabulous. I got to teach everything in German using German primary sources. I could give assignments and and I loved what my students were writing about. And I learned so much more. But I do believe that life has chapters. And I was getting to a point in my life where, you know, Robert and I decided to get married and you know, I, I didn't want to stay in Berlin for forever. It's a great place to be for a while, though. Yeah, I highly right. recommend it. But I wanted to come back to the States. I wanted to have a family. I was just at a different stage in my life. So my my uh, I came back to the States. I was still teaching. But I, I, we started thinking about, you know, what things would look like when we had a family. Uh, and some of the things that we enjoyed from Berlin didn't really translate. We were living in the D.C. area in Tacoma Park, and you're on the Beltway all the time. I mean, you're yeah. commuting, and your friends live in a tri-state area, and they sort of come in shifts of two and four years because it's, you know, there right. there are a lot of people coming, working for NGOs or political affiliations, and then they leave, and it's, it, you know, it was a particular lifestyle. It can be very exciting, uh, but I wanted something. I was a, being a little more Dorothy for the Midwest. Yeah. I was clicking my heels, and <laughs> Yeah. It wasn't working, so I had to figure out another way to get back. And I love Chicago. I think 
all of these adventures were were adventures, but I had always hoped to come back to Chicago. Right. And so it came to this point where we were house hunting and we'd saved $30,000 for a down payment on a home. And this was right before the crash. And everything that was in our price range was was really not, not anything. In to, yeah, about. in D.C. It was nothing really to be super excited right. about. <laughs> uh, and, you know. After, Which is probably a message, right? I mean, it's. Yeah, I feel, yes, it absolutely can be. I mean, it was, it, you know, and when you're. House hunting, you're you're deciding, do I want to settle down? Quite literally, yes, in a place, right. yeah. Right. And, and so, these were questions that we were thinking about a lot. And after one home that just had a moldy basement, and we raced out of there after you know <laughs> seeing the basement, <laughs> we we were like, you know, maybe maybe we don't need to do this at all. Maybe we should just move to Chicago and do something of our own and together and. You know, we'd spoken, we'd sort of been toying with these ideas in the past. We, you know, Robert comes from three generations of distillers in Austria. And every holiday, we would bring back some of his grandfather's brandy and we'd sit around with the family and by the fireplace and drinking the brandy. And, you know, we were, you know, it was at a time in which there wasn't really much craft distilling in the United yeah. States. And my sister said, you know, this is great. Why is this so good? You know, and Robert went into this whole scientific, you know, uh, kind of, you know, discussion about you know why this brandy is so great and how it only uses the heart cut of the distillate and and all these things. And, and she's like, you know, you know so much about this. And he's like, well, I grew up doing it. And we'd been having conversations about Plan Bs because you know over the holidays we always try and engage in an intervention with my brother to get him to leave uh silicon valley um <laughs> you know but uh and so we were talking about you know what plan b's could he do what plan you know and he's like why don't you do this you know my sister they sort of turned it on me and were like well this could be a plan b for you <laughs> and we're like i don't know you know when somebody says why don't you just start a liquor company it sort of sounds like somebody saying why don't you start a pharmaceutical company <laughs> it just, does sound Daunting. I mean, I, I do think it's interesting, though, because I, it hadn't occurred to me until you just said it. But a um, uh, gentleman that works with me, uh, a dear friend now, uh, Philippe Schmidt, he's our COO at Mother G. Uh, he comes from Alsace. Mm-hmm. And he would go back and visit, um, you know, in the past when his parents were still alive. And he would always come back with these these bottles of eau de vie. Yes. And uh, it's basically... Um, they're kind of bootleg brandy and, and, and they would go and, uh, he, he would tell the story about picking up the fruit as a kid right. and throwing it into barrels. And then, you know, he didn't really understand how they made it, but they would mm-hmm. make this, basically this liquor that they would distill into a brandy and then put it in these bottles and then they would let it, you know, whatever it wouldn't age very long. But the point is, is it was very craft. Every village had their own V, And, right. you know, when you would go to the different villages, oh, this was the pear village or this was the cherry village mm-hmm. or, you know, and and uh, and it hadn't occurred to me. But, you know, that's really the foundation that Robert's coming at this with. Right. Right. From this very localized craft movement that is very prominent abroad and not here. I mean, when we started, there were less than, I think, 30 licenses for distillers in the entire United States. Yeah, and if you think about Austria, which is a much smaller country, yeah, much there were about twenty thousand. Is so, that right? Wow! Yeah. And so that speaks to this: is that right. you know most farmers, this is a part of their 
you know, everything they do. So maybe right. they, they focus on fruit, but then they are also making cider and they're also making brandy and they're, you know, yeah. they're, they're doing things uh, with these raw materials in, in a way that just was not done in America largely because of prohibition. So, so you get this idea. We're going to, we're going to open uh, a distillery. Right. Uh, and, you know, I mean, one thing, you, you, you know, where you're located, um, uh, for those who know Chicago, you're not far from from Wrigley. I know it's um, great. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, yet you know when you think when I think of a distiller, I kind of think like pastures and grain silos, mm-hmm. and I I would have never thought downtown Chicago. The rent factors and in, in the costs uh, of being in Chicago seem daunting. I mean, how did you pick Ravenswood? Well, we really wanted to be in Chicago, so that was uh, so that, that was, was like that the, was a driving factor. Uh, so you were picking a business you could put in Chicago, right? In a sense. <laughs> it was basically it was like, how do we get to Chicago? We want to be in Chicago. What do we do? Uh, this is what we know. Uh, you know, so we when we decided to do it, we looked into you know what it would take to actually start a distillery, and you know the the laws, you know, they had in most states. Throughout the U.S., the laws hadn't been changed since 1934. So, and this was right. also true in Illinois, and so it created a very interesting situation because a lot of people, probably who might have gone into this industry, didn't because they there there really wasn't an infrastructure for this industry. Right. There wasn't a legal infrastructure. There was not a hard you know an equipment infrastructure. Um, certainly no software at the time for the distilling industry. Uh. So it was really new territory. And, you know, having grown up in Chicago, I knew that if you're going to engage in something new, it is a very good idea to make sure that you reach out to your prospective alderman and make sure that that is something that is going to work for that ward. That is so insightful. I would never think to do that. To me, calling your own politician seems like Something I would never do. I would never consider that. I would just try and work around the system instead of changing the system. Did I get this right? There were 26 distilleries when you started? Yeah, pretty much in the entire United States. 26 in the United States. But even more interesting than that is that, you know, while there were hundreds of products, almost all of them were made by just about nine distilleries. And so you take this idea. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's no laws in Illinois that can support this, which Illinois is not known as the least bureaucratic state you know, in the country. There were, there were a lot of gray areas, let's just say. But uh, what what really helped things out is that we, we felt that it was best to work within the system. And I would recommend this for everyone. And I feel that a lot of people are afraid of their politicians or they're afraid of some of these organizations, licensing organizations. Yeah. But really, they work for us. And they should. They, yeah, they do. But uh, I, I think that and they're not, you know, at least in in my impression and my experience in Chicago is that they want you to succeed. You know, they 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 don't want to be a taxes. stumbling block before you. You know, obviously, there are procedures that need to be followed and there are things that need to happen. Uh, but everyone wants you know, this city to be greater and greater and more and more successful. So when we reached out to, in fact, what we did is we looked at different parts of the city where there was a mix of light industrial and commercial and residential because we eventually wanted to live 
you know, where we were going to be working. But when we started, we moved in with my parents so. yeah. <laughs> but uh, for a number of years. But there were a few wards that we had determined would work for this kind of a business. And so I wrote letters to all of the aldermen in these wards. And two aldermen reached out to me. Uh, one was a little faster than the other. Uh, and and that was that was Gene Schulter, and he was amazing. He basically called me. It was very Chicago. I mean, this, I don't think this sort of happened anywhere else. He called me on the phone. He said, "I like what you got. What you're what you're thinking. I like what you want to do. I think the city needs this. I think this would be great for my ward. And I got a guy. Got and, a guy. I, and I and he's got a place. And I think you should see it. Yeah. <laughs> And, and is that where you landed? Oh, boy. Yes, it was. <laughs> right on the Ravenswood L, right? Ravenswood Corridor. Yeah, it was fabulous. And and actually, his guy is an amazing uh, Chicagoan, um, Joe Hayes. He was our you know first landlord. And, I mean, he took a chance on us, too. I mean, this was a very new business that nobody had done. So I, I, I still, like, it boggles my mind that you are thinking about starting a business and you it, it's basically against the law at this point. I mean, I know I it's say gray. That. Well, it was, but see, know. that's how you look at it. I think most people would look at it and say, "Well, you can't you can't have a distiller." I mean, that's you know, that's 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 a still, you know, those are against the law. The FBI comes with axes and chops them up. Well, the the feds were very happy, you know, the feds uh, you know, we were we were totally licensed. Uh, everybody, yeah. you know, we were licensed. It wasn't like we were bootlegging or anything. Yeah. No, I know. But yeah, but, but, but was, I mean when you when you had the yeah. idea of the business, yeah. you know, I I just love that you say, "Look, uh, this is what we want to do. The laws don't currently support this. So uh, let's just change the laws in Illinois. Well, that's exactly what happened. And so with Gene Schulter's help in the beginning, you know, we we actually were we were allowed to manufacture. That was that was OK. But we were not allowed to retail, do tours, do tastings. None of that was legal. Which for a craft business. It's so important. Yes. <laughs> it's so important. And Wisconsin, a few years, I think maybe two years before, um, they or when we had just started, Wisconsin had changed their laws. Uh, and one of the distilleries there, Great Lakes Distillery with Guy Rayhurst, uh, he was he was quite a maverick in Wisconsin. And, and he'd been working years to get the laws changed there. And so I, I spoke with him on the phone and he told me how important it was to get these laws changed and, and what kind of a, a difference that made for his business, which was monumental. Yeah. And so I reached out to uh, to my alderman and 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 uh, Alderman Schulter said, you know, this is a problem. <laughs> Let's, and I was like, yes, it is. We need to fix this. I, we need to be able to reach out to our consumers. They need to be able to come to us and find out what we're doing and why it's different and who we are and taste it. You know, because yeah. we, we don't have an advertising budget. Zero. Right. Right. So the only way people will be able to find out about us is to be able to come and try it and, and see where we're making it. And so we met with um, Heather Steens and Greg Harris, and we all got together and we had a meeting and we said, OK, we're going to change these laws. And so we worked on doing that. And within a year, they were changed. And the first craft distiller's license was available. That's amazing. So you changed the law to to provide a platform for your business. Yes. So up to this point, it, you've... You've built your distillery. Yes. You've been distilling alcohol. Yes. And now you have a venue where you can invite people in, show them your right. process, let them right. taste. Yep. Um, starting a business, I can relate. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of hours. 
Oh, it still is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to love what you're doing. Otherwise, you'd never do what you're I know, doing, right? I know. Insomnia um, comes with the program. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, did I read people were coming into the distillery mm-hmm. uh, asking if they could sign their kids up for a daycare? Yes, because in the very beginning, when we weren't allowed to have a store or do tours or tastings, I mean, our, I, I had little children and they were with me all the time. And so we turned the whole area that is now our store into a child play area with like little squishy mats and a little slide and a bunch of books. And it looked very much like a daycare center. Because <laughs> so, it kind of it yeah, was. It like, was. It was basically a daycare center for my kids who were right. with me while I was working. And they had their own little special area where they could play and they were happy. I was happy. It was great. But uh, it was right by the windows. So as people were walking by, they didn't necessarily <laughs> register. Or there was They did see a big still in the window. But aside from that, you know, they kept walking and then it became this whole child thing. And so it was very confusing for people. (laughs) They would ask, they would stop. Oh yeah, they would stop in and want to sign their kids up. And (laughs) I was like, no, well, we're making whiskey here. I don't know if that's really... (laughs) You want to teach them that? kids' Uh, classes on that. a little young for that. (laughs) That would have been illegal. (laughs) Your view on this was people don't make the whiskey or the distilled beverage because it's not just Mm -hmm. whiskey now. Um, But they they don't make it the way you wanted to make it. You saw an opportunity yeah. to make something different. Absolutely. We, yeah. you know, if we were going to leave our careers for this, you know, yeah. and tenure and Robert was the deputy press secretary for the Austrian embassy. So we, if we were going to leave this and all and all of our years of studying, getting PhDs, we wanted to do things our own way. We didn't want to copy anybody. We wanted to make our own mark. We wanted to do something that would be unique and great for Chicago. Um you know, that that we would be proud of. And so one of the things that we recognized is that being small was an advantage because it allowed us to make our products in a very different way than very, very large companies that need to make a huge volume. We're talking millions of gallons. And, uh, you know, at that time we were making maybe a few thousand gallons in the beginning. I mean, very little in the beginning. And so with that in mind, we could focus on the brandy tradition of making alcohol, which, you know, no one was really doing at all in the United States. And what the brandy tradition that Robert comes from is, is that they make alcohol, you know, out of fruit, you know, apricots or or pears, what you were talking about, these sort of odors. And in that process, you know, they're clear, so they're not aged at all. So what they put in a bottle needs to be very clean very true to whatever it is that they distilled. It can't be muddied at all with, you know, sort of different kinds of flavors that come off the still towards the end, which are fine. They're not bad for you. Um, But it's a very particular brandy approach. So it needs to be very clean and just the heart cut of the distillate, which is the pure ethanol. So essentially, in general, with alcohol, and you're distilling, it comes off the still in three parts. Heads, which will make you go blind and crazy, and hopefully nobody uses that. Then you have the heart cut, which is what I've been talking about, which is the pure, bright ethanol portion of the distillate. And then you have the tails, which come towards the end. Those are the long ends of the distillate. They're uh, a lot of fusel oils, um, you know, lower alcohol content as the still is running down. And they're a little muddy. They kind of taste and smell like a wet dog by themselves. (laughs) But they're not bad in the right. in the sense that the heads are bad right. and you hopefully would would never find a a product that you would drink that would have heads in them 
But tails are fine. And what what a lot of people do when they're going for volume, and also some people like the flavor after it's been aged, you know, Uh with the tails. You know, you get more out of it when you add the tails, right, you know, and you right. stick it in the you barrel. Get volume. You, get, you get a lot of volume. And we were following a brandy tradition that was that we are only going to use the heart cut. You know, we're going to give the same attention to rye as his grandfather gives to an apricot. Yeah. And, you know, in Europe or particularly in Austria, if you have a lot of tails in your brandy and you enter it in a competition, you won't win. Because they they'll say now, how would they detect that there's a tail? You can taste it. So you can taste it just purely yeah. from taste. Oh, for sure, you can taste it. You can smell it, and if it's a clear spirit, you can tell it's there. See it. Oh, for sure. Well, you can't see it necessarily. Okay. It's clear, but but you can definitely taste it and smell it. Okay. And but in a whiskey, it's it's harder and because you you're know, barrel aging, you've barrel got aging. other things, right? Exactly, exactly. And a barrel acts as a filter, too. So the char on the inside of a barrel will filter things out, you know, uh, and and different kinds of flavors. So is that why they char the barrel? Yes, it's a a filter. Well, they char it for the filter properties, but also for For the flavor, for sure, because you're getting so many flavors from it. But, you know, for us, we wanted to have our own style. And so... You know, we were just going to focus on the heart cut and have it be very. So clean. you're you're going to take this kind of craft approach that Robert learned from his family heritage, yes. and you're going to bring that to the U.S. Uh, to, to, to Ravenswood. Yes, to Ravenswood. Uh, <laughs> um, I have to ask the question: Your your PhD, you're a doctor, yeah, right? Um, you've gone to all these years in school. You're a tenured professor, right? Your husband's very successful in his own right, yes, and you move in with mom and dad. Are, are they are they saying what the hell are you doing? Oh, they were thrilled. Well, you're moving home. Yeah, they were thrilled, and we had a brand new baby, and oh, they yeah, were they so. were just so excited to have us there, and they were very supportive. I mean, we were so very did they, lucky. Did they see the opportunity for the business, or did they just see it as a vehicle to get you back to Chicago? I think that they had complete trust in us, so they were very much on board. We weren't thinking about failing ever. So with that in mind, was we it just, hubris or did you see the opportunity? We saw the opportunity, but for us, we were going to just give it everything we had and yeah, which you keep have to, pushing right? forward. Yeah. And so why think about failure? Yeah. I, I don't know if it's hubris. It's just why go down that road? I mean, you've got too many things to think about. Go, you just focus on the positive. Believe me, there are plenty of things that come up. Yeah, sure. Obstacles, right? Yeah, that that make it hard. We're going to circle back to that, but I want to I want to talk a little bit about the product because you know you you focused on this craft approach. Uh, I know you you source all of your grains yourself. Mm-hmm. It's it's really an integrated supply chain of what you built, and and that was very intentional from day one, was it not? Oh, we wanted to control everything. In fact, we do everything in house. It's very rare. We right. We even write our own software. Right. We, we I, do you know, everything. Yeah. So I want to and I want to make sure that we touch on that too. There's a lot of a lot of variants here. Um, Tell me, why, why is it important for you to source your own grains? I mean, isn't wheat wheat? Isn't corn corn? Well, we want to know exactly where it's coming from. I think that that's true in general. People want to know where their food is coming from. And if I'm making something out of 
you know, a rye grain or a millet. I want to know who's producing it and what their philosophy is. Obviously, all of our products are organic. Um, they're also kosher. And so if, you know, we need to have an unbroken organic supply chain. So we work with an organic cooperative in the Midwest that provides us with our grain. And, you know, we want the highest quality we possibly can get. You know, we're not um, we're not trying to do this, you know, inexpensively. We, we're taking uh, every every, you know, avenue we can to make this an incredibly premium product. And so knowing where the grain comes from, being able to call them and, you know, find out, you know, we have quality controls. We want to see it come in. We want to inspect it. We want to know everything about it. We even do the milling ourselves. So we don't get it already milled. So we want to see the raw grain and then we mill it. Right. So to our own specifications, but it's just about controlling the entire process. So, when you say milling the grain, tell me like specifically, like what is it that you're trying to do when you say, I'm going to mill my own grain. I don't want somebody else to mill it. Right. Why, why? Like, why does that matter to you? And what do you think you achieve by doing that? It's part of the whole process of it. And, you know, you can mill it to different, it's basically crushing the grain and you can crush it to in different ways, you know, to different degrees. It can be like a very fine flour. It can be sort of a coarse flour. And these are all things that we want to be able to control and, and do ourselves. Because they change the flavor it, we believe, profile? Yeah, to some degree. I mean, I, mean, we wanna, I believe that. I yeah. mean, you we, know, sure. Yeah, we. I mean, we've got our own style and we want to do things, you know, the way that we think gets the most flavor out of the grain. Is Robert your, um, I, I don't master know. Master distiller. Is, so is he, is, and that's so. what the master distiller does. It decides on. He decides how, on everything related to how it is. Flavor profiles. And, and how it is distilled. And, you know, we, we come up with different products together. And I mean, in the very beginning, it, it was just, <laughs> it was just us. Yeah. And right. So we were doing everything together. And I so was, was it just the distilling. two of you to begin with? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. I was distilling. Oh my God, so you're... I was nursing. I had, you know, <laughs> reading Sylvester the Magic Pebble, you know, all, all these things and, and, and uh, mashing and distilling and cleaning up every day and doing everything the, the, ourselves. The, another fascinating aspect of this, um, and, and I've thought about this because I love to cook um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I love wine and spirits and, and, and cooking is interesting because, you know, um, very few things uh, that you cook do you not have relatively immediate feedback on how well you did? Right. Um, most times it, you, you cook it, just put it on the plate and eat it. When you make bourbon, especially if it's barrel aged, you know, how, how do you know how that bourbon's going to turn out years from now when you start with the mash? Do you have to wait years to figure it out or can you get directionally an idea early on in the process? I, well, I feel that if you are doing things really well with very high quality ingredients. It's going to taste great. Uh, But I feel that there are different ways of doing things. And for us, we wanted to differentiate ourselves pretty much in two main ways. One was our process and using only the heart cut of the distillate. And we knew that that would have a very clean, bright flavor, which might be different than some of the other whiskeys on the market. And and that was fine with us. We, we wanted to do something that was a little more unique and, and different and uh, offer something else uh, to the to those that were interested in whiskey and, and see if it would take. The other thing 
that we wanted to do to differentiate ourselves is to use unique grains or alternative grains. So, for example, you know, we used millet as a grain. We used oat as a grain. And these were not your usual suspects when right. it comes to whiskey. I mean, when you think of whiskey, you're thinking of corn and rye and malted barley and wheat. And and those are the, you know, the, the main grains that most people use in whiskey. But we wanted to mix it up a bit. Right. In in when you said, let's mix it up a little bit, what was the motivation there? Well, we really wanted to be different. We feel that, you know, one of the great things about this craft industry is that these smaller brands that are a little more agile and and they can turn on a dime and they can do things differently because, you know, they're working in a much smaller scale, is that we were able to offer something different. And I feel that that's true for the entire craft industry in the United States is that, as you're saying, you know, now you have so many different kinds of products and it sort of has shifted things as well yes. in the United States. I mean, when we got started, vodka was still the big thing, right? you know, and and now that I feel that, uh, you know, drinking habits have changed. And I think that the craft movement has been a part of that in, you know, elevating different kinds of gin and different kinds of whiskeys and using different kinds of grains and and providing other alternatives for people to venture out and, yeah, and see if they like things. and try different things. So, so um, I know you sourced a lot of your distillery equipment from Germany. What, yes. Why was that? Well, when we started, you know, we were in full research mode and I was dealing with all of the laws and Robert was dealing with the equipment and he went to a number of trade shows for distilling equipment. And obviously his grandfather has a still and all of his grandfather's friends have stills. And so he went and worked with all of them and we we sort of narrowed it down to about three companies that we thought had really great equipment. And then we wanted to narrow it further to figure out who would be the right partner for us. And so we determined that we wanted to work with uh, Cota, which is Cota um, Distillationstechnik. And they are a uh, company that has made amazing stills uh, with wonderful technology for many, many years. And... In making that decision, you know, we we started working with them and we recognized that, you know, they have a great product and they weren't represented in the United States. And this is at the very beginning of the craft. Yeah, I mean, there's not that many distillers. So No, and certainly not that many craft distillers that would want small scale. Right, right, small batch stuff. And so, you know. When we started, as I said, we didn't we didn't have very much money. It was the down payment on our home, and that was pretty much it. And so we needed to figure out other ways because we don't have any investors. So right. we needed to figure out other ways to scale and to <laughs> before we could even scale, we needed to figure out ways to pay for everything that right, <laughs> that right. We were doing. rent and yeah. rent all that stuff. I mean, we had a lot of help yeah. from Visa, Mastercard, sure. American Express. Um, those were the days of you know transfer your balance for zero yeah. percent for a year. Don't I mean. Don't do that at home. Like, I don't right. recommend this uh, because it would balloon to 26%. Uh, percent. So it was a good motivator, though. Yeah, get get on the ball. We had to fail, really, yeah. fail fast or be successful. Exactly. But, but don't, yeah. It was, it was definitely right. risky. But, but so one of the other things that we had to do was, you know, make use of our other assets and our, our intellectual assets and whatever we could to make more money. 
or to get a reduction in the cost of the still. So we started offering services first to the still company. Hey, wouldn't you like an English website? We'll translate the German for you. Hey, you know, why don't we represent you in the United States? You know, and, while you're trying to make whiskey. Yes, because that was the only way. So, <laughs> so we could, you I, know. I, I don't understand how the uh, deputy ambassador for Austria starts writing software. Well, he was always for... sort of a uh, you know a closet coder. I mean, he 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 was always coding probably from the time he was a kid. So he was he's actually a very good coder. So Robert writes some of the technology because I, I you mentioned before that you know that's part of what didn't exist when you started. You right. know, I can see maybe Jim Beam having a lot of software, but it's right. probably all in-house custom written and right. whatnot. And, and there's probably not uh, at the time, certainly, uh, any kind of web application that wasn't even done back then, really. No. Um, so so what kind of technology did you feel you needed uh, to, to launch this? What was it that Robert was writing? Well, everything. So we started working with people in Germany to create an automation system for smaller scale stills. Basically, you know, there are a lot of things that happen in the still, you know, and there are a lot of things that can affect, you know, how the product comes out, whether you're going to get a good yield or not. Um, you know, if, if the plates, something's happening within one of the plates and the flow rate changes dramatically or the temperature changes dramatically, it can affect things. But you wouldn't know if you don't have sensors. So you don't. So you're flying blind. How, how his grandfather's doing this? He's he's looking at the temperature gauge on the still, right? Uh, while he's sipping a brandy, right? Hoping for the best. Yeah, hoping for the best. Right. Exactly. And then you know, but but you can't but have consistency to make a consistent that way. Product, exactly. Right? You you can't have consistency in that kind of a small batch environment. Right. And so we wanted to have high tech consistency, but with uh, craft and artisan approach. So right. we, we still make all the cuts by hand. We still decide, you know, when we're making our head, hearts and tail cuts so that we have our own heart cut. That's decide, you know, we decide that. Um, but we have automation system that tells us what's happening right in the still. So you can see inside. Right. And if something is going on that that is fluctuating in a way that is going to affect the end product, we can immediately address it. So for like temperature it. or something. Exactly. Temperature, flow rate. We can immediately address it. And so these were things that just didn't really exist at the time. And so we started working on those. But in addition to that, we started recognizing, you know, after I got the laws changed, we, we received a good bit of press and uh, we, a lot of people started calling. And so I would get these phone calls. And when you called the distiller, you got my cell phone. You know, so, <laughs> so I would get these calls from people that say, I've been making brandy in my backyard for years. And I'm like, don't tell anybody. <laughs> um, and, uh, and they would say, I want to get real equipment and I want to do this and I, I want to learn more. And where do I do this? And can you tell me how you did this or how you do that? And, you know, we didn't want to be mean to anybody. So we'd be on the phone, we'd be talking and, and then we'd be talking and talking and talking. And honestly, we were fielding maybe 15 calls a week, you know, when this craft, you know. While you're trying boom, to do everything else. Exactly. And it started becoming really 
uh, a pro- it was a problem. Yeah. You know, I'd be shopping at Jean's Sausage Shop for dinner or something oh, and trying Jean's. to get, yeah, they're great. And I was trying to get, you know, my potato salad and, and then there'd be a call and I'd be like, well, I'm shopping right now. They'd be like, that's okay. You can keep shopping. <laughs> I just have a few questions. <laughs> I'd be like, no, it's actually not no. okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm trying to corral two children and yeah. shop. And so we realized that um, there was a real need for more information and for equipment and for all of these things. And so we started telling people, you know what, come to our workshop. And in addition to that, uh, at the time, our TTB officer lived two blocks away from the distillery. They are the federal organization that oversees uh, distilled spirits. So. Um, two blocks away, that could two blocks be away. good and bad. Oh, it was it was it was fun. We were, we we were uh, you know we like to think we were teachers' pet, but uh, we tried to do you know, and it was yeah. a, a new time for the TTB two for the federal government because they were for the first time having to inspect and sure. deal with a very different kind of business. Yeah, and they'd never you know inspecting a mom and pop distillery is very different than a you know, seven factory. acre factory. Right. right, sure. And so they had to have new ways of doing things and they had to rewrite things as to, to you know, how, what does this craft distillery look like and how should the regulations be for a craft distillery? And, you know, obviously this has grown into other federal regulations and, and tax uh, breaks for craft distilleries too. So, you know, it still is evolving right. uh, with the industry, but, uh, and so, but, but it became a great opportunity. So we, we joined forces with him and he became a part of our workshops and making sure so, that. So you took, in a sense, you took all these phone calls in, uh, was was it out of a motivation to say, look, I got to stop fielding these phone calls, but I want to be helpful? Yeah. Or did you also see some business opportunity there to... Look, we were looking for every business opportunity yeah, we could. Every penny you could, right? Every single penny. And so we're like, okay, I guess we're starting another business. Yeah. And so we started a consulting company and our consulting company then uh, helped people out. And, and do you still have that business? We sure do. Yeah. And we have now educated about, I'd say maybe 4,000 people in how wow. to start a distillery and to distill. And we've set up uh, at this point about 200 craft distilleries all over the world. Wow. Uh, many in the United States. And so when you Canada. say set up, did, did you help them lay out everything. design, technology? Everything. Turnkey. All, wow. Turnkey solution. Teaching wow. them, uh, you know, because a lot of people that wanted to get into this business have, they didn't have any background in sure. this. I mean, we were lucky. We had background. It's complicated. It's complicated. It's it's an art. It's a science. We taught people and we not only taught them how to do it, but we helped them get their equipment and source the right equipment for their operation and uh, help them navigate legal things, um, even help them when they wanted to change the laws in their states. We we told them how we did it <laughs> and what our game plan was and the kinds of materials that we presented you know, it, to help our argument yeah. with the state, and it's tremendous, and it was it was great. And you know, now Robert set up one of the largest distilleries in Uganda recently, oh. and the first one in wow. Jerusalem, and a number of them in in Scandinavia and all over the U.S. and Canada. It's got to be rewarding. I mean, not only uh, which we're we're, we're actually going to try mm-hmm. the the, uh, the beverage here in a moment, um, right? But uh, it, it's got to be rewarding to see. Um, how what you created in your business is now actually being translated into so many other businesses, um, and and I'm I'm actually curious if if 
because it's competitive, right? In some sense, mm-hmm. you're setting up your competitors, but yet I, I know um, in in many ways, you know, the more craft products there are to an extent, right. the more market it creates for your own product. So. You know, the old gas station, why are there three or four gas stations on a corner and then you go three or four miles and there's no gas stations? It's because everyone knows if you want gas, you go to that corner and then you pick the one you want to go to. Absolutely. Right. So it can create more business awareness for your product if you create competitor. But do you ever see that competitiveness or do you just focus on the collaboration part of it? You know, we focus on ourselves, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. I, I mean, I feel that when you start focusing uh, too much on competitors or what somebody else is doing, then you're spending your time doing something that takes you away from focusing on being better. We, we try and, and, and focus really on what we're doing and how we can do it better. And we enjoy the collaboration. We enjoy that there are other craft brands. And, and we, we take a lot of pride in the fact that so many of them, even many in the Midwest, uh, came through our courses. You know, yeah, that, sure. That they started out as like weathermen or lawyers. And, and now they're well-known distillers in the industry. And, and that's, that's exciting and rewarding. I mean, yeah. I, I started as a teacher and I still teach. I mean, yeah. something. A very different topic, right. but uh, but maybe you know, more fun, yeah, <laughs> at least to you know, some people's perspective, right? For sure. Uh, did I get this right? The first name of the company or the product was Lion's Pride. Well, for the whiskey, uh, the, we always had Koval as uh, the okay, name so of the distillery. It was distillery. always Koval. It was always which, Koval, but which is a nickname of yes, your... of my great grandfather who came from Vienna. And, you know, sort of like my, my great-grandmother, Ida, that I mentioned earlier, he also <laughs> was a bit intrepid. He walked down the stairs one day uh, and said, Mom, I'm, I'm out of here. I am moving to America. And then she said, why would you do that? Vienna is the center of the universe. I mean, and at the turn of the century, sure. Vienna pretty much was, yeah, I, mean, I mean, when you think was, culturally. Yeah. And he says, no, Europe's over. It's all about America. I'm going and wow. I'm going to start a business. And so he did. He started a battery company in Chicago. Battery uh, company? Yes. Called the K- he was an electrical engineer. Okay. And so it was called the KW Battery Company. Which and is it, a maverick in a sense at 1900? Oh, Holy cow. Yes. I mean, it's, it, was, it was a thing. It was a big the, deal. Electricity was a science project back then. It was not right. like it is today. He was, he was a really, uh, he, was, he was a smart and, and interesting and very kind man. His, his name was Monik, but uh, he got the nickname Koval. And, and I didn't know this at the time, but when Robert and I were thinking of finding a name for the company, we were visiting my great uncle Sigmund, who had lived with Monik for many years. He, he was actually Monik's nephew. Uh, he was uncle with, you know, with quote marks. Uh, right. And... And so, uh, you know, he said that, you know, Monik was, was this great guy and he had so much appreciation for him. And he told me that he'd gotten the nickname Koval because when he left, you know, that's what they felt that he was being like. Because Koval in many Eastern European languages means schmied or blacksmith. But in Yiddish, it means someone who, like a blacksmith, forges something new, forges ahead. And uh, And so we thought that that sort of... It was a lot like what we were doing. We were trying to forge yeah. ahead. And so yeah. we took on that. But also Robert learned how to distill from his grandfather, whose last name is Schmied. Oh. So it sort of brought ah. it all together. That's simple. But it gets even better than that, because when we moved into the facility we're in today, which is a larger facility, also on Ravenswood, but up the street a bit, uh, that is now our main production facility. And we walked in and it was very big and we thought it was too much for us. Yeah. But there was one thing in that building 
and it was a battery charger from the KW Battery Factory. Oh, you're kidding. Which hasn't existed since the 70s. And you know what? We charge our forklift with it. Oh, that's cool. Still works today. Oh, so that's awesome. It gave us a little feeling like yeah. maybe this is the right yeah. place to be. Kismet, right? Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, I'm uh, while I'm opening this, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the one that we're going to taste here? Sure. This is our single, well, all of our whiskeys are single barrel, but this is our bourbon. And bourbon has to have 51% corn to be bourbon. Uh, and it's uh, the rest is millet. So it's a very unique bourbon. Uh, it's the only one which, which millet, a lot of people might not know. What millet is, I mean, it's sure. probably more crafty now. You'll see it in certain things. Right. But. You've seen a lot of breads, gluten-free breads. It's, yeah. it's actually one of the most popular grains in the world, but not in the U.S. Uh, it's one of the few grains that's basic as opposed to acidic. It is high-protein grain, and it's got a really nice, nice earthiness to it and sweetness. And so we thought it would be a good complement for the corn. It's it's got a very smooth profile to it. Mm-hmm. It's uh, mm-hmm. um, some some whiskeys when you smell them, my wife will you know cringe mm-hmm. uh, and just oh my god it smells like turpentine or gasoline. That's, those are the tails. Oh, those are the tails. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cheaper you're whiskey. Smelling, you're yeah. smelling. This is overproof, so it's actually forty seven percent alcohol, <clears throat> but yet uh, I think it still has a a good bit of a smooth character. Now, what is the alcohol content? Uh, do to the to the whiskeys it can make it hotter i mean it's just a higher concentration so a lot of people when they drink whiskey they like water with the whiskey you know they'll water it down a little bit or they'll add ice i mean all of those things sort of when you add more water you can open it up a little bit so you get a little more aroma this if you think about it this way the higher the alcohol it's tighter It's, it's tighter and you can loosen it up but some people like that tightness that that sort of concentrated flavor but you know when it's really cold it dulls some of the flavors too that's why a lot of um you know very inexpensive vodka tastes better frozen like very cold because it's the russians freeze it it mellows it a little bit but uh but i do think that you know any spirit that's really well made you can drink at room temperature i like gin our gin, room temperature. I, I'm, Which you, you didn't like gin when I you made the gin. hated gin when we first started. And our challenge, and I think Robert was not a big fan either of gin, but our challenge to ourselves was to make a gin that we loved. And we did. Now I love gin. I love our gin. I mean, yeah, it's I'm, it's so different. It's so aromatic. I, yes. I really do like it. Um, yeah. I'm I'm not a huge gin fan. I do like a couple of drinks with made with gin. Right. But I have to say... Um, uh, and and not being gratuitous, but your gin really is my favorite gin. Oh, it, it, thank you. And, and it's not just the bottle, but the bottle is a is a work of art. I love putting that, yeah. uh, you know, on the counter, not in the cabinet, because the yeah. the label itself is is amazing. It's won a lot of awards. The labels, uh, it's a laser cut uh, foiled label that. You know, that kind of a label had never been done before, and and we've won pretty much every award for it. I mean, if you haven't, it's worth, yeah. you know, it'll be on our website, and oh, you, know, awesome. I, you can go to Koval. And that's my and, sister's company, Dan oh, Project. Right? So as I said, oh. everything is done in-house yeah, yeah. in the family. So, so uh, <laughs> Todd, what do you think? This was the perfect way to end what was <laughs> the last six days of my life was my brother's wedding in Florida, and we've had more whiskey. And, and coming back to work today and starting with a shot of whiskey. <laughs> there Wonderful. You go. <laughs> Wonderful. Right. It's it's right. really delicious. It's smooth. How would you describe this? You know, I, I think that it has a lot of, you know, interesting flavors, sort of candied fruit. Um, I get a little white chocolate. 
Um, and, you know, some of the mm. sort of caramel um, on yeah. the back end. But I, I mean, I like that it is different. And that's what we aim for is something that is great, but not, you know, what you what you'd expect necessarily. And, you know, that's with a lot of our whiskeys. Our four grain has oat you yeah. know, in it, oat, malted barley, rye and wheat. And that's a really unique it, it is, too. and it's very different than this whiskey. For sure. And our rye, 100% rye, which yeah. is, you know, most ryes on the market are made with other grains. So too. so I've, uh, I I hope it doesn't insult you because some, some people tell me that you shouldn't take a good whiskey and make a cocktail out of it. But mm-hmm. I, I frankly think, you know, it's back to that ingredients thing. Uh, I love a Manhattan. Me too. Um, I've tried it with the bourbon. I've also tried it with the rye, and I right. think I like it with the bourbon better. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's your favorite cocktail? Oh, it really depends on the mood I'm in. I mean, I I enjoy Manhattans. I enjoy a Sazerac with my rye. I uh, really have a fondness for Negronis. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I, I, Is that I, the European angle? Because maybe I, I'm, I'm. And right now, I've been drinking a lot of cranberry spritzes with my cranberry gin. So oh, it's, yeah, it's the season. Sure, sure. Tis so, the season. Mm-hmm. Sure. You have a cocktail class. We do. We offer cocktail classes. We offer Ooh, tours. We offer all sorts of educational things because we just can't stop teaching. We yeah. love it. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're we're um, we're getting close to the end, but I do want to swing back on something that I sure. I find fascinating about you. How did, how did you become fluent in German, by the way? Well, I studied it in college. I mean, I grew up with little bits and pieces uh, my childhood, but uh, it was really college and then grad school. And so you decided. I, I decided. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And and was it uh, largely from kind of your heritage that you wanted to learn for sure. German? For sure. Because I mean, you're you know you're second generation American, yeah. right? Yeah. So you're not um, like the you know the, right. the child of an immigrant, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I tease my uh, my my children all think of themselves as being German, right? And, and they're um, I guess they're quarter German. Uh, and the you know Davenport the the surname side of my family goes back to the 1600s, wow. and I'm saying, kids, you you are deep American, like you gotta you gotta <laughs> go a long ways to to find right. that thread to Germany, and actually right. it was Prussia, so it's it's Poland right. now, so you're right. you're really not even German, you're Polish, right? Um, so we kind of get a chuckle out of that, but I'm curious, you know. Germany, obviously, World War Two, mm-hmm. uh, the Holocaust, uh, uh, horrific event, and yet. Um, you chose to embrace that mm-hmm. in in being Jewish. I, I find it an interesting dichotomy. I mean, I know some people um, that are Jewish that um, you know have uh, uh, historically didn't want to drive a Mercedes, for example, because for sure. it was part of the the war effort. And I'm curious what your perspective is on that. I mean, I absolutely understand that, but I also believe you know. <laughs> there wouldn't be Germany without Jews. Jews have lived in Germany for thou- like a thousand years, yeah. have been a very strong part of the development of German culture and German society. And so that's also my heritage. It's 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 German, but it's it's also Jewish. And you yeah. can't you can't separate the two. Unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of people feel that. Uh, the Jews in Germany came and left with the Nazis, but that's very far from the truth. Yeah, it's not true. Yeah, you. I mean, even even Jewish religious texts, many of them were written in in Germany. Many commentaries on Torah. You have uh, so many great writers that were German Jews. Yes. Um, you know, the whole fashion industry, ready to wear fashion. Uh, was very much pioneered by Jews in Germany. I mean, there's so many different facets to it, cabaret, all of that. You know, yeah. you, you can't separate it from the Jews. Right. So right. it's my heritage, too, and I'm going to claim it. 
clearly you're a maverick, mm-hmm. right? You, you you know the way that that you you said, oh, I want to open a distiller. Let's change the laws in Illinois. I mean, that it still blows me away. Right. Uh, um, in you know, you've got grandparents that did. The, it, it, is is it genetic? Do you feel like it's just how you were raised? I, I feel that our heritage is also a. It's like a fountain. And we can we can go to that fountain and we can draw from it and it can it can take us very far. We don't have to go to that fountain. But I think that there's a lot there for everybody, whatever your heritage is. I feel that, you know, that's that's what's happened in the past and the past propelled us to where we are today. And there's a lot to be learned from all of those stories and all of those ideas. I mean, one of the things that my great grandmother wanted most of all, Ida, the one that I I talked about before, was a factory. She wanted her own factory. She didn't get it. But uh, it was something she wanted, and I got it for her. Yeah, that's awesome. And Robert's grandmother, she wanted to move to America or Canada. She didn't get it, but he did. So I feel that life works in mysterious ways, and, you know, through the generations, there there are mysterious threads. And I think that we can draw on that for strength and inspiration, whatever your heritage is. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. This is, this is an amazing story. Um, the, the whiskey, I can't stop sipping and I'm going to have to put that away. It's morning. Know, so it's, my it's, day will not go right totally. if I keep, but, uh, I will maybe make a cocktail tonight, uh, with that, even though it's a weeknight, but, uh, yeah. Sonnet, I've, I've really appreciated your time. Thanks Thank for you. joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Midwest Mavericks is powered by Mother G. For more information and a free security assessment, visit MotherG.com.